Good morning. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. We have been in a series of messages for several weeks now, I guess a few months, and we're walking through the book of Romans. We have come to Romans chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at only a few verses today. Some weeks we go through a lot of verses. Some weeks we only go through two or three. Today is one of those that we're only going to get through two or three verses. There's a lot of wonderful truth packed in verses 6 through 8 of Romans chapter 4, talking about what we just sang about, the forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness that's found there at the cross. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, there is great and mighty and wonderful forgiveness So please stand in the honor of reading God's word. Romans chapter four, we'll begin reading in verse number six. This is the word of the Lord. Just as David also speaks the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Verse seven, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will never count his sin. Father, we thank you for this word. Now, there's great, deep, wonderful truths packed in just these few words. Lord, may we uncover those today. May you anoint my lips today. Open our hearts, Father. We want to hear a word from you. We ask for lives to be changed. We ask these things in Christ's name. And all of God's people said, please be seated. Two points today from these three verses. Point number one is this. We need forgiveness of sin. We need the forgiveness of sin. Sin is a debt. It's a debt against God. Most people don't even realize their indebtedness to God. Remember, God has high and holy standards. God is perfect. God is is holy. He He set boundaries around our lives. Every boundary is not something to restrict us, but it's to enable us to live freely and confidently in life. But the truth is, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, every one of us has sinned. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so in Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3, and Romans 4, it's all about the gospel and sin. The book of Romans is all about the gospel, the good news, that Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. That's the gospel. So the book of Romans is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we're divided into four sections, as you saw in the the video. We're still dealing with the gospel and how the gospel plays in with sin. But Paul is beginning to transition from Romans 1 and Romans 2, which is all about our sin and how we've fallen short. And now in Romans 3 and Romans 4, we're, we're beginning to get to the hope that is found, the forgiveness that is found. And so he gives example after example after example, specifically in the latter part of Romans 3 and Romans 4, all these examples and all these illustrations about how you and I can find forgiveness for our sin in Jesus Christ. So it's leading us to hope. So here's the question, how do we get out of debt? If we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, if we've all racked up this sin debt, how is it that we find forgiveness? How do we find the blessedness and the fullness that the scripture here is talking about? Well, Paul gives us yet another example. Last week, we saw the example of Abraham, right? This week, we see King David. When David says in verse 7 and 8, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, David is speaking out of personal experience, isn't he? As a matter of fact, these two verses are direct quotes from the Old Testament in Psalm 32. 
Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 in particular are two psalms that David writes out of brokenness, out of his sin. David had committed a a huge sin, a a great sin. He, He was a great man. He was a wonderful man. He was a saved man. But even David needed forgiveness of God. Last week, we saw Abraham, Father Abraham, and how Abraham needed salvation, right? We said if if Abraham, the patriarch of the Jews, and the reason why I believe that God used Abraham for for Paul to write here in Romans chapter 4 is to tell the Jews and to tell all of us that if Abraham needed salvation, then we all needed salvation. But even if we don't get that picture from Abraham, he now throws into uh, the equation another illustration. You see, Abraham needed salvation, but King David also needed salvation. Paul uses the greatest man in the history of the Jewish faith, Abraham, the man who started the faith. And then he comes around and he talks about the greatest king. If you ask a Jew that lives in Israel today, this very day, I've done this. You ask any Jew that lives in Israel, who is the greatest king that has ever served your nation? They've had many great kings. They've had many great presidents. But who's the greatest? They will always say King David. King David, even today, they go back to David and say he's the greatest king. And so Paul's point here is that even King David, the greatest king in the history of Israel, still needed forgiveness of his sins. David was not perfect. As we mentioned, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 are are really a confession of David, an outpouring of, of David's heart after a horrible sin that he had committed. You remember what happened, right? If you don't, let's recount the story very quickly. It was the case of the, of the open window shade. One day, David was standing on the roof of his house and, or on the palace, and he was looking down. David should have been on the battlefield with his men, right? His, his, his men, the, the warriors, the army of, of Israel were off fighting the Philistines, and David, the king, should have been fighting uh, with his men, but for whatever reason, he was being idle. There's a whole nother sermon here about how Idle hands are the devil's playground. You, you, you don't, you, if you're not doing what you're supposed to do, you're going to wind up getting in trouble. That's at least what we tell our kids, right? So David is, is idle. He, he's not where he should have been. And, and when you're not where you should have been, oftentimes trouble is right around the corner. And he looked down off the roof of his palace and he saw a woman and she was bathing and and he lusted after her and he said, I want her to be my wife. And so he brought in this woman by the name of Bathsheba. And instead of him turning his eyes and turning his head and asking God to, to, to take that temptation away, he indulged in that temptation and he committed a great sin. He took Bathsheba as his wife, even though she wasn't. When she was found to be with child and the child was David's, David arranged the murder of Uriah, Bathsheba's actual husband. David was a great sinner. David sinned. The the, the king began to hide his sin. After this, he he began to cover it up. He he tried to hide it all, all the arranging and, and the conniving and all the cheating. He thought he was hiding the record from God. But in the midst of all this hiding and running from God, he was miserable. Do you know why David was miserable? He was miserable because he was a saved man. The Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. That's the way the Bible describes him. And when you are God's property, when you sin, conviction falls upon you. You see, that's the conviction of the Spirit. David knew he had messed up. 
And instead of falling on his face and repenting at the moment, he tried to cover it up. He, he made it even worse. So yes, even the great King David needed salvation. His sin with Bathsheba broke three commandments. Three commandments. He, he coveted, he committed adultery, and he committed murder. Three sins. Three, three of the ten commandments David broke in that one, that one swath of temptation. He broke three commandments. He coveted, he committed adultery, and he committed murder. Now, this is important. This is very important. It doesn't mean much to, to we Gentiles, but to the Jew, when we talk about the number three, to a Jew, to the Jewish heritage, if, if we were raised, if we were Jews, if we were from the line of Shem, from the line of Abraham, when we hear the number three, that registers something in our mind. To us, three is simply just the number that comes after two and comes before four, right? Three doesn't have any meaning, but if we were Jews, when we hear the number three, light bulbs begin to go off in our mind. And I want to take just a few moments today in the message to, to help us to, to understand Jewish culture, because in order for us to understand Scripture, we need to understand this great truth. Three is very important in the Jewish world. Something that happens in the Jewish culture three times makes it legal and binding. So if you want to be married in the Jewish world, you, you, get, you get together with your spouse, and on the altar you say, I marry you, I marry you, I marry you. Three times it makes it legal and binding. If you want a divorce in the Jewish culture, you say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Three times, it makes it legal and binding. Three is the number that makes things legal and binding. The Old Testament is divided into three parts. The Torah or the Pentateuch, the, the first five books, the writings of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the, 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 the Pentateuch, the Torah. Then you have the writings, the, the, the history, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, uh, Samuels, the Chronicles, the Kings, you have the writings, the Psalms, the Proverbs, and then you have the prophets. So there's three main books to the Old Testament, the Pentateuch or the Torah, the, the writings, and then the prophets. Three sons of Adam are mentioned in the scripture, Abel, Cain, and Seth. Many sons and daughters of, of Adam and Eve, but only three are mentioned, Abel, Cain, and Seth. Three men, three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of us in this room are descended from one of three men, three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, or Japheth. You see, three makes things legal and binding. You can't go outside of that. It's true. No matter how you look at it, it makes it legal and binding. It stands up in court. You can't go against it because there's three but this is not just an Old Testament thing. It's also found in the New Testament. Remember, the New Testament was written by Jews. And so we come over to Revelation 4, and we see this theme of threes carry on again. In Revelation chapter 4, when the angels begin to praise the Lord, how many times do they call God holy? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And now we have another set of three. It says, who was, who is, and who is to come. You see, what that tells us is that the praise of God, the worship of God that's going to take place in heaven, Revelation 4 depicts not this world, but that world when we're in heaven. And so that tells us in Revelation 4, he is holy, holy, holy. 
You can't get apart from the fact that God is holy. And his worship is going to be legal and binding. We can't separate ourselves from the worship of God that's going to take place in heaven. Who was, who is, and who is to come. The praise of him is worship is, is legal and binding. His existence and power over creation is legal and binding. He was, he is, he is to come. The temple, the, ter- the tabernacle, the, the temple that was destroyed in 70 AD, the temple that will be rebuilt, the, 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 the tabernacle and the temple, they have three parts. The house of God, divided into three sections. It makes it legal and binding. That's why it has three parts. Go back and read the Old Testament. The, the, you have the outer court, you have the holy place, and then you have the holy of holies. Now, we find in the New Testament that no longer, is God, no longer does God dwell in the, the house that were built by the hands of men. But where is the tabernacle of God now? Us, right? We are the temple of God. And guess what? We are made up of three as well, body, soul, and spirit. It makes the house of God legal and binding. Do, do, you, do you see it? Do you understand How many years did Jesus minister on this earth? Not one, not two, not four. Three years. It made made his ministry, it made the the miracles, it made everything he did legal and binding. There were prophecies that were saying the Messiah would come and do the things that Jesus did. So since there were prophecies, there had to be something that made it legal and binding. The three years of his ministry. How many times did Jesus pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? Three times. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? You see, his denial was foretold hundreds of years before Peter did it. It was foretold that he would be forsook by his closest friends. So in order for that prophecy to be fulfilled, it happened three times because in Jewish culture, by Peter denying Jesus three times, it made his denial legal and binding. On the seashore, on the seashore when Jesus, after he was resurrected, and Peter jumps out of the boat and into the water, and he comes and he swims to the shore, and Jesus asks him, how many questions? Three questions. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Why is he doing that? Because you see, Peter had just denied him a few weeks earlier. He had denied him three times, which made his denial legal and binding. But what Jesus did was his restoration is now legal and binding because he asked him three times. So Peter, you're not a, yes, you're a sinner, but I have restored you. Peter, I'm going to do great things through you. So the restoration of Peter is legal and binding. How many days was Jesus dead? You see, it made the death of Jesus legal and binding. In order for us to be saved, in order for us to experience salvation, Jesus had to die and be legally dead. That's why he was dead three days. No question, he was dead. In the book of Acts, Peter received three dreams. Peter's a Jew, remember? So God spoke to Peter, who was a Jew. At this time, Peter thought Christianity was a Jewish religion. No concept that God was going to bring Gentiles into this. So God speaks to Peter, who is the rock, who is going to be the mouthpiece to see uh, Christianity begin to spread. 
And he speaks to Peter, not in one dream, not in two dreams, but he speaks to Peter in three dreams. Peter's light bulb in his head starts going off. Peter, Peter, listen, three dreams. I want to bring the Gentiles in. It's not just for the Jews, but it's for everyone. You see, it made it legal and binding. There's seven feasts in the Jewish culture. But there's only there's three main ones. You you probably assumed that there were going to be three, right? There's of all the feasts, they have seven feasts. Seven is the number of perfection. But there's only three of those seven that are the main feasts. There's three of those feasts whereby God tells every Jew that on these feast days you are to come and make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem every year. So they're, they're the main feast days. They're, they're the main ones. They're, there's three because three makes it legal and binding. Now, why is it that, that these three feasts are what makes it legal and binding? I, I've said all of these things to, to come to this point because I want you to see the beauty of what God's word says and, and how when we go back to our Jewish culture, our Jewish heritage, it makes the word of God come alive. What's the point of these three main feasts? Well, let's name them off. First of all, Passover. The second main feast is, is Shavuot or, or, or Pentecost. And then the third main feast is Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of the Booths. I want to take just a few moments and share the beauty of the deep, rich meaning of these feasts and how they speak into the Christian world, the significance these three have for us. Again, we have to understand that, that our Christian faith has been born out of Jewish roots. So we have to understand these. The majority of us, we recognize, we see these on the screen. We, we, we see these three feasts and we, we recognize maybe one, maybe two of them because they have significance for us in the Christian world. We understand Passover, right? Passover, uh, the time of Exodus when God told Moses uh, I am that I am. I want you to go to Pharaoh, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. The death angel passed over, and so we, we have Passover. So from that day on, we, we have Passover. And of course, we know that Passover is also the, the coincides with the crucifixion of Jesus. So we, we got that one. Now, Pentecost, what is Pentecost? Pentecost, Penta, like Pentagon in, in Washington, D.C., Penta means five or 50. And so the Pentecost means 50 days. It's 50 days after the Passover. So Moses and the children of Israel, 50 days after they left Egypt, 50 days after that was the day of Pentecost. And that was the day that Moses received the law of God on top of the mountain. So on Pentecost, the first Pentecost is the, the receiving of the law. And, and we know that in the church world, that, that it was 50 days following the death of Jesus when the Holy Spirit fell and, and instituted a new covenant. So, so let's wrap our minds around this. So we've got Passover, which is the death of a lamb, right? The, the blood of the lamb that is placed on the doorpost. 50 days after the, the death of the lamb is when the, the law is given, when a covenant is given, the covenant that has been dipped in the blood of the lamb. So the first one was through the lamb that was placed on the lentils, the blood that was placed on the lentils and doorpost that left Egypt. We as Christians understand that Jesus is the lamb of God, right? Who shed his blood so that we can have forgiveness of sin. 50 days after Jesus died, the day of Pentecost came. And Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2 talks about this. And this is the coming of the Holy Spirit who came and rested upon 
each man. And not just outside, but now he has made us the temples of the Holy Spirit. So now a new covenant. The first Pentecost was the covenant of law, right? God, God gave Moses the Old Testament, gave him the law. The new covenant is the covenant of the Spirit. It's the covenant of grace. It's the new covenant or the New Testament. Does that make sense? So we have the old covenant, the Old Testament given to Moses on Pentecost. We have the new covenant, the New Testament given to all of us on the day of Pentecost. It's the covenant of grace. Now the third feast. Many of us don't understand this one, the Feast of the Tabernacles. This is not talking about the tabernacle that was built by the hands. This is referring to the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and how God tabernacled, how, how God lived, how God dwelled among them in those 40 years and how God provided for every one of their needs. And so uh, this feast that the, the Jews celebrate, the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of the Booths, the, the, this is it's an eight-day-long festival. Uh, it covers two Shabbats or two Sabbaths, two holy days. And so they, they, they worship and they worship and they worship. Near the end of this, they begin to, they begin to quote and read uh, the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 14, which talks about the coming Messiah. You see, the Jews don't believe that Jesus has come yet. They, they, they believe that Jesus came, but they don't see Jesus as the Messiah. They're still waiting for a coming Messiah. But you and I know that the Messiah was Jesus, right? Zechariah 14 was foretelling what Jesus, who Jesus was and that Jesus came. The Messiah has already come. And we understand that, that this has already taken place. But we also know that we're kind of in this time of limbo. While God has sent us the Messiah in Jesus we still don't live in a perfect world. God has chosen to come and, and dwell among us, but we're still living among sin, right? Now, we understand that there's coming a time when, when God will wipe away the sin from the earth, right? Uh, Revelation 21.3. Revelation 21.3, John says, I, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Sin at that point has been eradicated. God is setting up a new kingdom. And here's what John writes. Behold the dwelling place. In Greek, that means tabernacle or booths. Behold, the tabernacle of God is now with men. This is what the feast of the booths is looking forward to. Does that make sense? So you see from these three main Jewish feasts, God is telling us that life and death and eternity is legal and binding. Three feasts. Three feasts that were given to the Jews that have now come into the Christian faith, and we now understand. We don't celebrate the way the Jews do. We, we see them with a brand new meaning. But these three feasts, the, these three holy days for the Jews, make what he has said in his word legal and binding. Let me show you. The death and resurrection of Jesus, that's something that happened in the past, Passover. Feast one. Feast two, the, the, the filling of the Spirit, Pentecost. That that's something that happens on a daily basis. Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians that we are to be filled with the Spirit every single day. So our past is covered and with the death of Christ. Our present is covered by the filling of the Spirit and, and sanctification. And then our future is covered with the residence of God with us, the Feast of the Tabernacle. Revelation 21, this is our future. So you see, these things are no mistakes. God has clearly, clearly given us his plan in the number three to make all of this legal and binding. Why, why do we doubt? 
how is it that we can come to these things? This is not a coincidence. There's no such thing as a coincidence, by the way. We should take that word coincidence out of our vocabulary. There is no such thing as a coincidence. There's only divine providence with God. There are no accidents. Everything happens for a reason and a purpose. And, and God has so structured this. Go, going, back, go, going back to the passage in Romans chapter 4, David was in a world of hurt. He, he, one sin would have leveled him. But he broke three commandments. It made his sin legal and binding. He covered, he committed adultery, and he murdered. Like we said, one's enough, but the three showed the downfall of the king. This is why David says in Psalm 51, reflecting on his sin with Bathsheba, verses 16 and 17, he says, for you will not delight in sacrifice. God, I've messed up so bad, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it to you. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise that. You see, David understood his case was hopeless. All he could do was throw himself on the mercy seat of God, saying, God, don't give me what I do deserve. Please forgive me. And so God forgave David. Yes, there were consequences to David's sin. The child, the, the, the child that was in Bathsheba's womb died at childbirth, and so... That tells us that there's always consequences to sin. But the beauty is that what we see from this passage is that, that when we confess our sin, God forgives us of that sin. God forgave him. God forgave him. Yes, there's consequences, but God forgave him. And then God took another huge step. Not only did he forgive David, but we also see that he reconciled him. You see, not only do we need the forgiveness of God, but we need the reconciliation from God. This is a great truth brought out here in verse 8. Verse 7 says, uh, and, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man with whom the Lord will not count his sin. You see, God doesn't just forgive us. That's great. I, I'm so glad for the forgiveness of God. But he doesn't just forgive us. He takes a step forward and he reconciles us with himself. He doesn't just forgive us, but he covers over our sins. You see, it's great to forgive someone, but it's, it's actually easier to forgive someone than it is to reconcile with someone. To reconcile with someone means that you take the offender and you make them who they were to you before they committed the offense. That's what reconciliation is. Forgiveness is saying, I forgive you, but I can forgive you and still hold you out here. Reconciliation means that I have forgiven you, but I'm going to restore you. Even though you have sinned against me, you've offended me. I am still going to place you where you were before you offended me. Reconciliation. You see, that's what God does for us. Not only does he forgive us, but he reconciles us. 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was reconciling the world unto himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. What we see here is a continuation of, of, of Paul's description, his definition of justification. He, he, remember what we said, Romans 1, 2, all about sin. Romans 3 and 4, we're getting into forgiveness and we're beginning to get into hope. Justification, we defined it two weeks ago as this, God's holy act in which he declares a believing sinner righteous. When he says, you and I who've committed all these great sins, I don't see your sin, I see a son, I see a daughter. How does that happen? He's telling us how it happens right here. It's through forgiveness uh, justification has two parts. There, there, there's the part of forgiveness, and then there's the part of reconciliation. 
So in order to be justified, you have to, be, you have, to have your sins forgiven. But then God also reconciles us. See, how is that possible? If the wages of sin is death, the pain of sin is death, must I not die? Must I not pay the penalty for my sin? Well, can I not cover over my own sin? Can I get away with my sin? That's what David tried to do, right? David began to hide his sin. The Bible says that whosoever covers his sin shall not prosper. But whoever uncovers his sin will find success and prosperity. I want to give you a spiritual principle this morning. It goes something like this. Whatever we cover, God uncovers. That's the first part. That makes sense, right? Whatever, whatever we cover, God uncovers. When you try to cover up your sin, God is going to uncover. There's no such thing as a secret sin. How many pastors have we seen in the past several months that have fallen for immorality or, or some other sin? That they got too big for their britches and, and they, they thought that they could do and live however they wanted to. Pastors are, are, are no different than anyone else in the fact that when, when anyone tries to hide their sin, their sin will find them out. You cannot hide sin from God. What you try to cover, God in heaven will uncover. Jesus said there'll be a day when those things done in secret will be shouted from the, the housetops. So whatever we cover, God uncovers. But here's the positive side to this principle. What we uncover, God covers. I hope you get this. What you cover, God uncovers. But what you uncover, God will cover. When you get honest with God and you confess and you are willing to lay, to, to, to open up your heart and say, God, I'm tired of trying to hide this sin from you. I, I cannot hide this sin from you. When you begin to uncover your sins before him, God in heaven will cover over your sins with the blood of Jesus Christ. Stand clean and holy before God. Through his love, he'll cover our sin. You see, this is what happened to David because when David was confronted, he was finally confronted with his sin. Nathan, the prophet, came into the palace of the king, and, and he told a story, an illustration, and, and it broke David's heart. And David said, the person who committed that great sin should die. And Nathan, the prophet, stuck his, his finger in the face of, of the king and said, David, thou art the man. It's your sin, your sin against God. And David, at that point, put on sackcloth and ashes, which is a, 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 a picture of, of, of remorse and, 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 and repentance. And he tore his clothes and he went before God and he, he went before God and he began to pray, God, forgive me, God, forgive me, God, forgive me. The son died. The child died. The consequence is still there. But we find the forgiveness. You see, David, out of this experience, he write blessed, uh, right, right here, verse 7, blessed or happy, happy, joyful is the man whose sins are forgiven. Who wouldn't want their sins forgiven? What type of human, knowing that we've sinned against God, knowing that our sin is going to rack up, is, is racking up a huge debt that we cannot pay, who would not, knowing, if I tell you this day that your sins can be wiped away, who would not want that? You see, forgiveness takes place in Jesus Christ. John the Baptist said, right before the baptism of Jesus, he said, behold, the Lamb of God, speaking of Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. See, Jesus will take away our sin. 
three areas of forgiveness. We might as well carry on this theme of three, okay? So three, three areas that we need forgiveness, and then we'll close. Number one, where do we need forgiveness in our life? Number one, we need forgiveness with God. So we need to admit our sin. Forgiveness from God, admit our sin here. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, we'll see in Romans 5, Romans 6, when we get there, that the wages of sin is death. The word wage means price. So the price of sin is death. Sin requires death to take place. If you've never admitted your indebtedness, your spiritual bankruptcy before God, you cannot pay yourself, you cannot file bankruptcy with God over your sin. You can't do that. Your sin has to be paid for. If you've never been saved, you've never come to Christ. So so you have to come to a place when you admit that you need forgiveness. There's so many people walking around today who claim to be Christian on, 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 on all levels, from celebrities to politicians and, and all of this, but the question has to be this. Has there been a time when you asked for forgiveness, when you repented of your sin? Salvation cannot happen unless you realize that you're a sinner. Hello. <laughs> you have to acknowledge the fact that you're a sinner. Admit your need. Invite Jesus Christ to be Lord of your life. Receive the forgiveness from God. Then what? Once you receive the, the, the promise that is vertical, now we have to deal with forgiving ourselves. You get forgiveness from God, now we have to forgive ourselves. If you're a Christian, you need to stop keeping books on yourself. If you've come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have, if you have experienced his salvation, you need to recognize that the books are closed on your account. Some Christians, some Christians are always remembering what God has forgotten. And on the other hand, we have some Christians that forget what God has told us to always remember. Now, it's good to ask God to search our hearts, right? It's good as Christians to, to, to even though our sins are washed clean, it's good to repent. It's important to repent. If we're going to live in the will of God, we must repent of that sin. We cannot live in, in habitual sin. We have to confess that. Psalm 139, uh, if there's any wicked way in us, search our heart, oh God. That's what Psalm 139 is all about. We, we need to always be transparent with God and open to God. But we should not continue to rehash our sins that are forgiven and cleansed by the power of Jesus Christ. Christian, he has forgiven you. He has forgiven you. So why is it so hard to forgive yourself? It's hard, isn't it? We all have skeletons in our closet. We've all done things that that have broken the heart of God and also have broken our own heart and broken the hearts of others. But can I tell you that the most important thing after your salvation, after you receive the forgiveness of God, is that you have got to forgive yourself. Christians who can't turn the page and get on with life are always feeling guilty. Feelings are real. We, 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 we understand that. But you cannot base everything off of feelings. Show of hands, how many people feel like going to work tomorrow? Great case study. Right there. We don't feel like going to work tomorrow. But if you like the house that you live in, the car that you drive, and the food that you eat, you better go to work tomorrow. What about this one? I'm thinking about renting a bus and parking it out here on the, the property, and tomorrow 
Uh, we can all, who, who feels like going to the dentist tomorrow and getting a root canal? Just come on and, and we've got a bus, 55 people can fit on this bus. Anybody, any takers? Now, you may not feel like getting a root canal, but if you have a messed up, I don't know what a root canal, if, if you've got a messed up root, you better get it canaled. You may not feel like it, but you better do it. The point is we can't base everything on feelings. If, if you still feel guilty over something you did years ago, you've confessed it a thousand times. Can I tell you that God, if you've confessed that sin a thousand times, God has only heard your, your, your confession, your prayer one time. The other 999 times that you prayed and said, God, forgive me, God's saying, I've already forgiven you. I'm not going to answer that prayer because I already answered it. I, I've already given you that. So yes, there are prayers that you pray that can go unanswered because that's one of them. God says, I, I can't answer that. I cannot answer that prayer. I, I have already given you the answer. I've already forgiven you. Stop praying forgive, for forgiveness and receive the forgiveness he's already given to you. You've already been forgiven. Thirdly, not only do we get the forgiveness from God, we must forgive ourselves, but then thirdly, we must forgive others. You see, forgiveness that we've received from God extends God's forgiveness to others. 1 Corinthians 13, 5, the Bible says, love does not record wrong. Love never makes lists on anyone else. It's like that lady I heard about. She went to the doctor and the, the doctor said, ma'am, you need to sit down. I've got some bad news for you. So she sat down and the doctor said, ma'am, I don't know how to tell you this, but I've just diagnosed you with rabies. And you know, rabies in, in humans is really bad. There, there is no cure. One, once you have rabies, you, there, there is no cure. So this lady sitting down in the doctor's office, she pulls out her pad and paper and a pencil and she starts making notes. And the doctor says, ma'am, what are you doing? Are you making your will? And she said, well, no, sir. I'm making a list of everybody I'm gonna go bite. <laughs> you know, there's mental image there, but you know, there, there's a... There's a lot of people who are always keeping little lists, always keeping records of, of how somebody has wronged you and how they've hurt you and disappointed you. And listen, if you can't forgive others, then how in the world can you receive the forgiveness from God? If you cannot forgive others, then how can you receive the forgiveness of God? I know that some of us have been deeply hurt by others, but you need to turn it over to God. The most unchristian thing is unforgiveness. Extend forgiveness. If that person that, that offended you, if, if they're not in the area, maybe they're dead and gone. Your forgiveness needs to be with God. Once you receive the forgiveness of God and you've made peace with yourself, now you need to make peace with other people. Accept God's forgiveness today.